proceeding from the great commission given by Jesus to make disciples of all nations, the early church exploded and countless souls were made new by the atoning work of Christ. Dead hearts were made alive and churches sprouted up throughout the world. As a need for clear and concise biblical interpretation arose, the Reformed Confessions of the Faith were written and still have a major impact on the church today. The Confessional Collective desires to see healthy, theologically sound churches planted and on mission for the Kingdom of Christ. Welcome to the Confessional Collective. Welcome to the Confessional Collective, where truth meets mission. My name is Aaron Carr. I'm the pastor of First Presbyterian Church of Trenton, Michigan. The Collective is a band of confessing pastors, planters, and churchmen. Welcome to the Confessional Collective. Today's podcast, we have with us Jim Mong. Jim, how you doing? Doing very well, thank you. It's great to have a guy who was a Baptist who decided to become a Presbyterian <laughs> with us today, so I'm excited about that. Uh, for right. the listeners, just so you know, Jim is a resident here at First Presbyterian, and we are just really excited to have him on board um, in church planning for us in Ann Arbor. Jim, would you give us just a little bio of your background and where you're coming from? Yeah, definitely. Um, as Aaron said, I did grow up in a, a Christian home, Baptist, but a wonderful Christian home. Parents loved Jesus, set a wonderful example, example for me uh, as I was raised. Uh, from a very young age, I felt called to the ministry, and God in His grace opened doors for me uh, educationally to go to various uh, schools, and, and through that time, just very blessed in studying the Word and preparing for ministry. Um, it was about uh, a year and a half ago that I felt called to come to Ann Arbor and, and plant a church. And again, uh, God opened doors through First Pres Trenton to move here with my, my wife and at the time five kids. Now we have six. Uh, but to move here and help start plant a church. So, yeah, very blessed. Uh, very thankful for the mission God has given to us and uh, excited about church planting in Ann Arbor. Tell us a little bit about your educational background and as well as your ordination into ministry and just your uh, your church ministry background. Yeah, so growing up in uh, fundamental Baptist circles, I'm very thankful in many ways for that upbringing. They really uh, took the Bible seriously and encouraged me towards education. So I went to uh, first, actually, that's hard to believe, but I went a semester to Bob Jones University. Um, a very fundamental Baptist school, and was uh, encouraged there, but left after a semester to go to Northland Baptist Bible College and study there for about three and a half years. And while I was there, I slowly started to uh, come to more of a Reformed understanding of Scripture, uh, especially soteriologically, uh, came to more Reformed understanding there. And uh, after uh, Northland, uh, I kind of took about a year off trying to figure out where I fit theologically and ended up taking some classes at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, then some classes at Reformed Theological Seminary, and then ended up at Knox Theological Seminary and, and Fort Lauderdale, a PCA school. Uh, so now I'm still at, at Southern taking a, a PhD course in biblical counseling, uh, but kind of have an eclectic mix of uh, education for myself. I was ordained in the OPC about seven years ago, served in a church over in Grand Rapids for about seven years in the OPC. Before that, served in a few different Baptist churches, uh, kind of as a resident or on staff. Um, but yeah, still an OPC minister, 
Uh, right now, we call it working out of bounds because I left my church in, in Grand Rapids and am moving here to plant a church. So uh, as I work on this mission work, I'm in the OPC uh, seeking transfer into the, the Presbyterian Church in America. Now, when you were at Northland, was there a particular professor that um, kind of engaged you with Reformed thought, or was it something you were just kind of venturing out on your own? Yeah, I would say there was a professor and a group of, of guys that uh, we really started that conversation asking questions, and we just were led to, to more of a Reformed understanding. There was, a, there was a class in the Book of Romans with about eight of us guys in it, and uh, I would say around six of us got together with the professor, uh, and just as we slowly worked through the Book of Romans, uh, his teaching and the conversations we had and then the books that he gave us led us to more of a Reformed understanding. Uh, it, was a, it was a process. It was, it was a long process, but I would say that professor was a key, uh, key uh, part of that transition. What was a particular book that you remember as being kind of instrumental in that uh, kind of awakening? Uh, there was a book by Richard Belcher. I forget the title of it, but it was a conversation with, uh, a, a, between a pastor and a parishioner that slowly walked uh, the parishioner towards a, a Calvinistic understanding of the faith. And that book was very helpful. A few books by A.W. Pink, uh, The Sovereignty of God uh, being one of them, uh, maybe, maybe a J.I. Packer book in there, but a, a few at the time. Uh, I've always loved to read, so definitely uh, quite a few books as I transition. Actually, R.C. Sproul as well, uh, a few of his books were very helpful. Usually the book Chosen by God is one of the instruments yeah. that uh, R.C. Sproul um, it was foundational in a lot of our uh, conversions there. Um, your story is very similar to mine, coming from a fundamentalist background and really uh, clinging to the Reformed roots. Um, so I'm very encouraged to hear that I'm not alone in the world on that. So it's excited uh, just uh, how much our, our backgrounds match. Uh, Jim, we play a game. It's a little just a get to know you uh, game. It's called um, Impacts and Setbacks. And so I'm just going to ask you a series of questions and you just answer what comes to mind. And the first is this, who would you say your f most favorite old dead guy is? <laughs> uh, I would probably say, uh, to sit down and speak academically, John Owen, to have a beer with Martin Luther. So it depends how you're asking. Uh, I probably wouldn't want to have a beer with John Owen. doesn't seem like that would be enjoyable. But yeah, John Owen, uh, some of his works have been deeply impactful in my life. Martin Luther, uh, just love the guy. Uh, inspirational in many ways. So is, I picked two. But. Is there a particular beer you want to have with Martin Luther? <laughs> I'm not too too picky. Yeah, just just Budweiser, you know. <laughs> oh wow, he's got better taste than that. Um, moving along, the next question that we have for our impacts and setbacks is: What theologian regularly punches you in the face, in the sense that brings conviction? Yeah, I would say um, Jack Miller, if we can call him. He was a pastoral theologian for sure. Uh, you know, just. Uh, late 1980s, I think he passed away. Uh, but in the last two years, Jack Miller has transformed my life in ministry, awakening me to my sinfulness. And as he has done that through his writings and some of his uh, tape ministry, uh, really as he's awakened me to my sinfulness, uh, the glory of Jesus has been so evident. So 
Yeah, Jack Miller, just a wonderful book on repentance. Uh, really uh, opened my eyes to the gospel. And then he has a book on servant leadership, the heart of a servant leader, uh, that I try to read and reread. Um, so yeah, he's not really a Puritan or a reformer in that sense. He's a little more modern, but he's very, he quotes Calvin and Augustine and, and many of these guys and is from that tradition. Okay. Kind of taking a step further from that, what theological topic or issue has given you the greatest difficulty? Yeah, I mean, if you know my story growing up Baptist and, and transitioning to a Presbyterian view of baptism, uh, baptism would have to be the, the answer there. Um, my wife married a Baptist guy. <laughs> Her dad is a Baptist pastor, uh, lay elder. And when I told her I was uh, contemplating infant baptism, it was a very difficult time to work through. Um, God used it in amazingly gracious ways. Uh, but it was a difficult time and just a whole theological uh, worldview change that took me about a year and a half, two years. So I, I love the journey, but during the journey it was difficult at times. It was hard to grasp. Um, but understanding covenantal theology, uh, reading as much as I could on baptism and, and, and covenant theology. Um, Herman Bovink and his works were very helpful uh, as I transitioned. But yeah, that, that would be the, the area that took me a lot of time and uh, caused a little bit of grief, <laughs> even in my marriage. Um, God graciously redeemed that, and, and we're cool now. My wife and I are, are, are cool with it, but uh, that was... It's a difficult time. Share a little bit about how you guys came together on that, because I know, first of all, you have uh, quite a few children, and second of all, I know that they're baptized. So I just want to share that journey, because I also know your wife has wrestling through a lot of that herself. Yeah, I would say we're still on the journey in some ways. We are, uh, Lord willing, if I can say this, done having children with six. <laughs> Um, we are planning to be done having children, but um, still on a journey in a sense that uh, she uh, was always willing to talk about it. We talked through it. This happened when our first child was about a year and a half. Uh, Selena was baptized around that time as I came to this view of baptism. And definitely for Selena and my second, Ryle, um, she had a very difficult time with even the baptism, but she really encouraged us forward towards baptizing our children because she felt like I was the leader of the home. And uh, I tried to do it in a gracious and humble way, but that was my conviction. So she followed me in that. I would say with each child, it's become a little bit easier. Uh, she understands it more. If you were to ask my lovely wife, Susanna, what her views were on the matter, I think she'd still say she's a Baptist. Um, but that's not an issue to me. Um, I'm planning a church, as, as you, you guys know, that uh, honors both views of baptism. So I, I think I'm a very committed, I don't think this, I'm, I'm a very committed uh, infant um, pedo-baptist, but I think we should hold our views with humility and be able to work together uh, in Christ's mission, uh, honoring both views, even in the church, it can practically work out that way. So I guess I have a split marriage in that sense, um, but uh, it's been fine, and, and God has used it to, uh, I think, draw us closer together, even if we don't agree on every matter. 
An interesting point that a lot of the listeners are unaware of is the fact that you're planting with your father-in-law. How and how has your relationship with him kind of been more intertwined in this whole development of this theological uh, understanding for you? Yeah, I still remember calling my my father-in-law. He's he's one of my uh, one of the few mentors in my life. Very uh, has really impacted my life. He sets a great example as a father, a husband, and as a pastor. Uh, I still remember calling him when I was struggling with this. Uh, my wife was having a difficult time with the transition and the change and, and just the uh, loss of stability. I was leaving a, a position in a Baptist church because of this. Uh, and I remember calling him, and the way he graciously responded uh, to, at that time, a young 20-something-year-old kid struggling with baptism, encouraging me to talk to as many people on both sides of the issue as possible, uh, encouraging me towards study and reading. Uh, his gracious response was huge at that time, huge for my marriage, uh, but also huge as I uh, studied through this matter. So he's always been a mentor, a great example. Um, he lives just north of Ann Arbor and has for, I don't know, 20-something years. Uh, and so throughout the years, we, we would talk about planning a church and the Baptist baptism issue kind of always kept us from making any uh, move in that direction. But about a Two years ago, I would guess, we uh, had some conversations when, with some churches out in Chicago, College Church, uh, a few other churches that they've planted, and they have this model where they honor both views of baptism. And as we talked with them and wrestled through how this would work out practically, uh, we just uh, both thought that this could work. It kind of uh, was a slow process, but uh, we decided to move in this direction, and, and God has amazingly opened doors. Uh, my church sent me out uh, positively supporting what we were doing. A few other churches in the Detroit area, First Presby and one of them have gotten behind us. And uh, it's amazing to see how, how God has opened doors for this uh, unique work uh, in some ways. But I think Ann Arbor is such a, a unique context, um, a global, small city, but a global city in many ways. And uh, if we can help the other churches there, uh, through this ministry, through this mission, uh, we're excited about it. Can you give the listeners just a few minutes on Ann Arbor itself? And um, obviously we have listeners from all over, and just so they can understand better where it is you're trying to plant. Yeah, I mean, Ann Arbor is known primarily for the University of Michigan. Uh, I am not an Ann Arborite in the sense I didn't grow up there, and it's, it's very important to people uh, that you're from Ann Arbor. So now we we live just north of the city, and I spend every day in the city on campus. Uh, it's a very liberal city, a lot of Bernie Sanders signs all over, uh, a lot of T-shirts and stickers for Bernie Sanders, so that's their uh, political leaning. Uh, he did pretty well last night, I saw. I know, I was close. Yeah, I was surprised. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I would just say we have been amazed with the open door for the gospel here. Uh, there are some great churches here that uh, really have a, uh, an eye for students and, and families in the area. We, we just hope to join these churches um, by presenting the gospel to the thousands, uh, 43,000 students, I believe, 120,000, around 120,000 people in Ann Arbor. Uh, there's, there's need for more gospel work to be done here. So, uh, yeah, it's a camp. It's a it's a college town. Uh, the university dominates the town. Uh, 
but it's yeah, I, I love living here. I love being uh, in the city and on campus, and I'm excited about Michigan football as well. So, all go things. blue! Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on to uh, the major part of what the Confessional Collective is about, which is um, confessionalism. And it's interesting to see your journey as a fundamental Baptist into confessionalism. And I obviously am aware that you settled on the Westminster Confession as your confessional standard. Could you take us a little bit on that journey as you kind of opened the confession maybe for the first uh, couple of times and began to really wrestle with how you aligned with it and why you settled on it? Yeah, I, I think we can be very thankful, you and I, Aaron, for our heritage in the fundamental church, um, partly because of their commitment to the Word of God. And I grew up in a context where the Word of God was preached. It was clear that the, the Word of God was the authority for the church. Now, I don't agree with all the ways they interpreted that uh, and applied that, but that was their core conviction. And I, I think that foundation really is what has led me uh to embrace, you know, confessionalism and come to the Westminster Confession. Uh, it is a commitment to the authority of the Word of God. And I, I think we see that clearly in, in the confessions, in all of the Reformed confessions, they make it very clear right at the beginning that this, that their authority is Holy Scripture. It is not a bunch of guys just coming together and putting their ideas together, uh, but the authority is the Word of God. And and so for me, as I grew up with that foundation and slowly my theology started to change, I found myself in an OPC church first as, a, as an intern, and the pastor there would slowly take the church through the Westminster Confession. And I, I just saw the value of that, connecting to a historic uh, a confession and understanding that it's not uh, over Scripture, but uh, it's an interpretation of Scripture and, and useful in, in church life and ministry. So for, for me, I, I think that foundation set through the, the churches I grew up in led me naturally to embrace um, the Westminster Confession. Kind of going back to your root and my root in fundamentalism, obviously they're known as the fundamentalist because of their stance on the fundamentals of the faith. And obviously the most important was the focus on God's word. And a lot of times when we talk about confessionalism, we hear people stressing the issue that their, their, uh, that their standard is scripture and they don't need a confession, no authority but the Bible kind of thing. How do you wrestle with that as you're dealing with maybe your family members that are still in a more fundamentalist background or your friends who have watched you kind of make this transition? How do you work through with them their understanding um, of no creed but the Bible versus your understanding of the importance of confessionalism? Yeah, I, I think, you know, this morning I was, and I don't do this every morning, so don't think uh, too well of me, but I, we're trying to work through the shorter catechism with, with my two oldest kids. And so we were just working through the first uh, five questions, and question number two of the Westminster Shorter Catechism is what rule hath God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him? And the answer is the word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. And I, I don't think it gets any clearer than that. Uh, the confessions are not over scripture. They, 
they, I think, in humility, we hold the confessions as an interpretation of Scripture, and in humility, we recognize that these, this is uh, the fruit of generations of the church. So whenever the confession was written, Westminster uh, Confession was written in the 1600s, it's the fruit of those men, but also they were going back even further to the Reformers and before that. And I, I think the proper way to hold to a, a confession is in humility, understanding that this is a generational understanding of the truth. And in humility, God has gifted the church with these men uh, to pass this on to us. So, yeah, I, I think sometimes people hold confessions, sadly, in a proud way. Uh, and that's very sad. But also the, the biblicists can do the same thing and just say, we don't need the creed, we, we just have the Bible. Well, then we're dependent on our interpretation alone, or maybe just the interpretation of our church or our denomination. Um, I, I think a proper confessionalism understands that we hold these things in humility, understanding they're men and men who have gone before us uh, to pave the way. Uh, along with that, being a confessionalist is understanding that uh, Reformed means a whole lot more than just the five uh, the five points of Calvinism. And so as you're changing and your theology is growing, I'm assuming you're, you're working through the confession and you're realizing there's a whole lot more to this being Reformed than simply my tulip position. And how did, how did the confession help you in that more broad stroke understanding of Scripture? Yeah, for me, uh, I found myself in that internship at the uh, Presbyterian Church over in Grand Rapids. The pastor was slowly leading the people through the confession. Uh, he was a wonderful teacher, is a wonderful teacher. Uh, and as he went through the, the various paragraphs of the Westminster Confession, uh, my theology expanded, and I, um, I would say a key area was the doctrine of the church, which impacted my view of baptism. Uh, those things just, uh, I, I think the confession isn't perfect. The Westminster Confession isn't perfect. It's not scripture. Uh, but it helped me to refine different aspects of my theology. And I find it still, even as I take classes at Southern Seminary with a number of Southern Baptist guys, uh, when we have various conversations from my last five to seven years in the catechism and in the confession, I'm able to bring those things to the table uh, that some of these men who, who haven't had that experience, that, that background, couldn't bring to the table. It's very helpful, even though I, didn't, even though I wasn't raised in a, uh, a church where I was taught the catechism. Even for the last five to seven years, those things are so helpful to add to any kind of theological conversation or even discussion and, and practical ministry matters to bring the truths of the catechism or uh, the confession uh, have really impacted my ministry and uh, these conversations. One of my favorite stories is a story B.B. Warfield tells of, I believe it was, um, it was a great Baptist minister. I want to say D.L. Moody, but I'm not sure that's exactly who it was, but was visiting a home. And 
in the course of that, there was a discussion with, amongst these ministers and, and church leaders about how to define God. And so one of the, the uh, ministers there was a Presbyterian, and it was his home, and he invited his, he called for his daughter, and she sat upon his lap, and the way he describes it, she crossed her arms, and in an eloquent way was able to um, confound uh, all of these great theologians by just repeating and reciting the shorter catechism in question four, God is a spirit. He is infinite. He is eternal. He's unchangeable in his wisdom, being power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And I think for me, that stirred a lot that we can answer a lot of theological questions rather than journeying out on our own, but building off of the foundation of the past, standing on the shoulders of those who've gone. So I totally connect with what you're saying there. Um, in in our upbringing, your your upbringing and mine being fundamentalist, we had a, a major vein of dispensationalism. And in that wrestling through of our dispensational understanding of things like the church and how that plays out into issues of baptism, how did you deal with the fact of the church um, being started all the way back, you know, in the Old Testament as opposed to just the New Testament? Was that earth shattering for you or was that refreshing? How, how would you describe that journey? Yeah, I probably... Uh, to be honest, this is going back far in my history now, uh, 15 years ago, uh, uh, maybe not, 10 years ago. Um, I would say it was both, and it was such a long process because it is, uh, in some ways, a completely different view of uh, Scripture as a whole, at least, we can say that. And, and so it was just a long process of checking things that I was taught. Is this scriptural? Or is this kind of placed over Scripture? And uh, and, and, and examining those um, dispensational key points, examining those, uh, and as I studied, deciding that I believe those weren't scriptural, taking those off the table, and slowly starting to grasp a different view of the church and a different view of uh, the promises of God in the Old Testament. So at first it was earth-shattering, of course, uh, but then the beauty of Scripture uh, the beauty of the, the church, the beauty of the promises of God for the church, uh, the beauty of um, a baptism, I would say, all those things uh, came to light. And yeah, it's a glorious journey because it's studying uh, the Word of God and uh, I, I think, hopefully, uh, coming to a better grasp of Scripture. Um, so yeah, and it was a little of both, I guess is how I'd answer. Earth-shattering, but also wonderful to see the promises of God applied to us today in the church. Now, with being a confessional and holding the Westminster, I know you said that it is helpful, but it's not perfect. And because of that, I know in your view of subscription, you're going to take some exceptions to that. Um, what exceptions do you personally take to the Westminster Confession and why? Yeah, when I was ordained seven years ago in the OPC, you stand before the Presbyterian and they ask you that question. Uh, and I would say it's the same exceptions uh, as I mentioned on that day. Um, the the paragraphs on on the Sabbath and the application points on the Sabbath and the confession, uh, I took exception to in the sense I still believe God has set aside a day for us, the Lord's Day, uh, as a holy day to be set aside for worship. But as you read the confession, and you know, partly this is when it was written, some of the ways they apply that I, I think are too precise, and uh, definitely we can take exception to the application points. So I, I did then, and I do now. 
uh, take exception to that, even though I still uh, believe uh, in the Sabbath and the Lord's Day. So that was one exception. Uh, and then I hope this doesn't get me in, in too much trouble, but I, I took exception also to um, the way they applied the uh, second commandment, uh, no graven image. Uh, I do believe in education. We can have uh, pictures of, uh, story pictures of, of Jesus in the education ministry for our children. Uh, and some would apply that as uh, we can't have any pictures of Jesus anywhere. Uh, of course, I would say not in worship. We don't put a picture, poster of Jesus up front and worship it. Uh, but I think in education we can we can have that. So exceptions like that, uh, I, I probably would have to reassess a little bit uh, the, the paragraph on baptism and, and see with what I am doing now. Uh, make sure that I don't need to... My view of baptism hasn't changed. My theology of baptism hasn't changed. Uh, but I'd have to make sure that what I'm doing is consistent in every way with, with that paragraph. So I haven't done that. Uh, but any exception that I would take is just that what I'm doing is a possible uh, mission that could take place in the church. Now, as a church planner, you're developing a core team. And as you develop core team, obviously you're developing leaders and future leaders, future elders for your church. What is your expectation, first, of your confessional standard? I'm assuming it'll be the Westminster, but maybe not with uh, your partnership with your with your father-in-law. And secondly, what is your view of subscription going to be for these leaders as they are developed? Yeah, we have decided to hold to the Westminster Confession uh, with that exception uh, for the leadership of the church that we honor uh, believers' baptism. So a leader in the church, an elder or a pastor, uh, can hold to believers' baptism and yet also subscribe to the rest of the confession. Uh, so yeah, for leadership, we since that is the confession of the church, we expect them uh, to subscribe to that confession, the Westminster Confession. Uh, but as I have exceptions, they could have exceptions as well. Um, we think it is the best summary uh, of Scripture, of the teaching, of the doctrine of Scripture. We think it's the best summary. Uh, but again, in, in, in humility, as we study it, uh, we, we match it next to Scripture, and uh, any leader in the church can take possible exceptions in certain areas, and we would have to assess what those exceptions are uh, to make sure that it's fitting with our context, with our church. Uh, but, but that's what we see happening. We're just about five and a half months into this, uh, but yeah, they would have to understand the confession, know the confession, and um, subscribe to it in that way. And what does the confession look like missionally for you? What I mean by that, what role does it play in your reaching Ann Arbor? Uh, is that something you're going to wear on your sleeve? Is it something you kind of you you cloak under your under your coat? How, what role does the confession play in your missiological aspects of planting a church in Ann Arbor? I think many of the truths, uh, the truths of found, uh, described in the confession, move us to mission. And even as I've gone through ups and downs in this new mission work, uh, it's the truths as described, you know, the truths of the Bible, but as described in the confession that have been a great solace to me and a great encouragement, uh, the providence of God, <laughs> the election of God, all of these things, I, I rest in them as I work hard in mission, and, and they motivate me towards mission. So, yeah, I think any proper confessionalism 
will lead us to mission. It has done that throughout the history of the church. Something is gravely wrong uh, when there is a confessional church that is not concerned about mission. But for us, I am not here in Ann Arbor to uh, introduce the Westminster Confession to students at U of M or people in the community. That might be a part of our ministry as we seek to teach them scripture, but my primary focus is introducing them to Jesus Christ and the gospel and the love of God, right? Uh, calling them to repentance and faith. So, yeah, I, I think I'm answering your question, but uh, the confession is what we believe, and, and we've thought about having times where we work through the confession even early on, uh, and introduce it in, in, in other settings uh, because I think it's a beautiful description of the truth and a beautiful outline to, to work through uh, for a young church. Uh, but that's not our, our primary mission is not to spread the confession. It's to spread the gospel. Uh, the confession supports us in that in certain ways. Do you think being a church planner who's confessional is harder than just being a, confers- a, a church planner who's minimalistic? That's a good question. I, I, it depends what your goal is. Uh, it's harder if you're just trying to gather a group of people. Uh, maybe I can say that. But I actually think it's a lot easier if you're trying to build a healthy church because the truth of God matters. Our commitment to Scripture matters. And if we're trying to evangelize and disciple people, uh, the truth is an integral part of that. So we're, we're introducing them to Christ, but we're committed to leading them forward as followers of Christ. So the confession uh, is a wonderful tool. The, the truths found in the confession, even if we don't cite the confession, uh, you know, certain ports, parts of the uh, shorter catechism and the way they describe uh, growth and grace, repentance unto life, who our uh, Redeemer is, those things are foundational um, so I think it's a great tool uh, when you take the catechisms, uh, the shorter catechism especially, a great tool in introducing new believers to more truth uh, in a succinct way that helps in their discipleship. What would you say to somebody who is confessional and says, hey, I heard you say that your goal is to interject the gospel to Ann Arbor, but hey, Jim, don't you believe that the confession is biblical? And don't you believe that because it's biblical, your goal should get people to understand that understanding of Scripture? Well, that can be a, a, the primary goal is the gospel and introducing them to Christ. I mean, of course, we're, we're going to preach the whole counsel of God. Uh, we're committed to preaching through uh, expositionally books of the Bible and, and themes in Scripture. Um so, yeah, I, I just think, look at the ministry in the New Testament. Look at the book of Acts. Look at Peter's sermon at Pentecost. What does he do? He preaches the gospel. He calls them to repentance and faith. And then we see in the rest of the New Testament epistles, of, of course, they lead people on in discipleship. It's always connected to the gospel. Uh, so it's not an either or in a sense. But sadly, I, I think, especially coming from Grand Rapids, if I can say this, um, sometimes what matters most to people is making them Calvinist and not Christians or uh, maybe we could say confessional and not followers of Christ initially. You know, what, what is our primary mission? Not to make people think like me about these aspects of Scripture, uh, but, the, but to get them to repent and believe in Jesus Christ and then lead them forward in discipleship. 
So that's a that's a key uh, distinction for me. Um, I stand alongside people who aren't confessional here in Ann Arbor. I stand beside pastors who have a very different view of things, but they love Jesus and they're introducing people to Jesus. I wish their theology was a little different. I wish they were confessional, I guess I could say. But I'm thankful that people are introduced to Jesus and, and maybe they go from their church to another church that's uh, has a more in-depth understanding of the truth. Uh, but I'm not here to, to make people Calvinists. Uh, what would you say is the hardest thing about being a church planner? Uh, probably rejection. <laughs> um, that, was, that was the hardest you know, thing get, about dating can, as well. No, see, I could get any girl I wanted. That was rejected. <laughs> um, yeah, so just uh, you come in with a lot of excitement. Uh, and still, I'm very excited about what we're doing here. Uh, but you have, I've had conversations, you know, growing up just about a half hour from Ann Arbor in Detroit. I uh, would have conversations with friends from long ago, and they'd be very excited about what we're doing. Uh, but they're established in certain ministries or church, uh, churches, uh, small groups, whatever. Um, and it, it's hard that, you know, not everyone is called to what I'm called to. Uh, so sometimes I should be, re- you know, the, the call to come to Ann Arbor should be rejected because they're called to something else. Uh, but as we try to gather a core team of people, and as I see just the open door for the gospel here, and, 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 and as we think, oh, we just need more people for this cause, for this mission, uh, there's so much opportunity here. It, it's tough when dear friends or others just don't feel called, and after they pray and, and, and work through it, aren't a part of it. Thankfully, some have felt the call, and, and some have uh, got, uh, come alongside us and joined us. Uh, we just pray for more um, I think it's been so good for me spiritually. I, I think it's been so wonderful to uh, expose certain idols. You know, um, uh, very thankful for the work and very thankful that it has been difficult in some ways. Um, because what has through that how how God has taught me more who I am and and kind of uh, uh, exposed some of my motivations. You know, why do I do what I do? Why do I fear failure? Why do I fear rejection? Uh, if I'm doing this for Jesus, uh, I think sometimes my reaction would be a little bit different. So, yeah, it's been wonderful, but the hardest part is trying to get people to come, and sometimes they're not called to come. Uh, Let's play on that a little bit. What do you feel is your uh, greatest weakness in planning, personally? As a planter, what do you feel is maybe your greatest weakness? Yeah, I, as a planter specifically, um, it probably applies to all of life. Yeah, I, Forgetting the gospel, uh, we, we heard a lecture yesterday, a sermon yesterday that was wonderful uh, by Joe Swords up in Clio, Michigan, Acts 29 church planner. But uh, the way he described church planning really spoke to me because what happens is uh, I get in the way and uh, the fear of failure and going back to my former church and saying, this is how it's going, uh, this is how far we've come, and, and not... Uh, coming back, excelling in a sense as a church planner. Uh, so yeah, my greatest weakness uh, uh, probably is the lack of faith and a turning away from the gospel 
that's probably a quite broad answer. Um, that's good. What would you say has been your greatest victory in church planting up to this point? Yeah, uh, this is a process for sure, but uh, I think God has humbled me more through this, and, and through that humbling, turned my eyes upon Jesus more. Um, and uh, again, a process. I'm sure there are many more ups and downs ahead of me uh, in this work. Uh, but really, through this, just uh, realizing that, again, it's not about me. It's not about Redeemer Ann Arbor. It's about Christ's cause in this world. It's about Christ's mission in Ann Arbor. How is God going to use us? Um, so, yeah, the greatest victory, I think, hopefully, will be more and more true that our eyes are off ourselves and they're out upon Jesus. And uh, we labor for him. We, we work hard uh, for him. Um, so, yeah, God's work in my own soul, I, I would say, is the greatest blessing, the greatest victory uh, through this, uh, through humbling, uh, turning me to Jesus more. Now, I heard you say uh, you referenced Acts 29 and Joe Swords, and I know that you are in process to be Acts 29. You're finishing your conditions so that you can be a full member. Um, what made you choose to partner with a network like Acts 29? Yeah, I know that X29 is not confessional in the sense uh, that we are, are confessional as a confessional collective. We're a little more uh, narrow, probably not the best word, <laughs> precise than that. Um, but uh, yeah, their understanding of Scripture, their commitment to truth, and how that leads into mission and church planning, I immediately uh, gravitated towards. I was interested in it, and as I studied who they were, and as I went through the, the pretty detailed application process, in some ways more detailed than my ordination in the uh, Orthodox Presbyterian Church, uh, the way they got into my heart and my family life and my marriage and asked very detailed questions, yeah, the, the more I um, became, more I understood who Acts 29 was and what they were doing, uh, it was just spot on with what I want to do in Ann Arbor. Uh, the truth leading to love and uh, leading to mission and, and the commitment to church planning. Uh, I believe, at least in my background, there was a little uh, contentment to kind of stick within the doors of the church. We'd talk about mission, we'd support foreign missionaries, um, but a little bit of a reluctance to actually get out there and, and talk to people. And, and X-29, I think, is leading the way in, in, through church planning. Uh, leading the way in even evangelism and local evangelism and, and this this outreach mindset that uh, is the heart of God. I, I know what you mean because in my own journey, the reason we partnered with Acts 29 is I wanted to be more missionally minded, but I wanted to make sure I had that reformed soteriological understanding. I didn't want to be about just doing whatever um, or however, but to make sure that our confidence is on the fact that God saves. And I know that when I came into X29, my wife and I went through the assessment process and I had the exact same experience you did, which is like, wow, this is actually in some ways harder than my ordination exam. Because while my ordination exam was very theological, they didn't really do a lot of processing of my marriage, a processing of our 
of our piety and our and our personal walk with Christ and how we're raising our children, where I saw X29 take that very seriously, and it's what encouraged me through that process. And it sounds like you would agree with that as well. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I, I think you would hope that some of these denominations could learn from some of the aspects of the assessment process in Acts 29. Uh, because, yeah, I, I had to know the Westminster Shorter Catechism to be ordained. I had to uh, take, I don't know, seven or eight different exams, uh, Hebrew, Greek, all these things, which is wonderful uh, in many ways. But little talk about my marriage, little talk about how I was growing in Christ, little talk about parenting. Uh, yeah, Acts 29 had a, had a better full-orbed view of the man and, and his ministry. One of the other things that springs over from Acts 29 into me personally, and I know as you as well, is the idea that we don't just want to be about a church plant, but a church planting movement, churches that plant churches. And so one of the questions I want to ha- ask you is, how do you think existing churches can help church plants better? Yeah, I, I think an existing church should be on mission. Right? They should have a clear, articulated mission that the people in the church know. And if they have that clear, articulated mission, and a, a church planner comes into the vicinity of them, you know, and some of their people happen to live closer to the church planner or feel compelled to be a part of that mission, a pastor or elders in a church could say, we have this church moving here to start this ministry we encourage you to consider being a part of that church. This is why we're here. This is why we're on mission. We want to support churches like this financially. Uh, but but consider maybe you're called to be a part of this new church plant. And I, I think that should be the mindset, and I've thankfully seen it in, in churches. It's, it's uh, been wonderful to see that. But sadly, sometimes uh, we can be concerned about losing people, especially that it impacts our finances. Um, yeah, so the biggest way is just being uh, more about the mission of Christ and not our specific mission. Um, I'm speaking it from the church planner side, so I, I, I need to be gracious with, with some churches that have showed a, di- a different mindset. But I think uh, that should be the mindset in the ideal world. That's how larger churches, sending churches, should work, uh, encouraging people to consider using their gifts, even if it means going to a different church. We definitely see that in Acts chapter 13, where the church is sending off two of its brightest and best, and yeah. uh, Barnabas and Paul. And it's interesting how it seems to take place when they're worshiping the Lord, and the Lord uh, communicates to the church that they need to send these individuals off. And I also appreciate the fact that Paul and Barnabas didn't take it upon themselves to walk out the door, which I think a lot of young church planners do. So there seems to be a clear understanding that sending and being sent uh, are important aspects of existing churches. Yeah, and that's what we've tried to do as we've moved here as as contact pastors, not uh, subversively try to uh, talk to people in various churches, but contact pastors and, and see where they're at. Uh, on this spectrum, if they're all into church planning or not, uh, before we've contacted people. But yeah, the church, the elders in the church should be behind it, should be encouraging people to be on mission, either in their local church or in another work. Um, The people need to be on mission. How do you think something like the Confessional Collective can benefit church planning overall? 
Yeah, I, I think uh, I firmly believe that truth leads to mission. It really does. That's the example we see in Scripture. Uh, when Paul writes to Timothy, the aim of our charge, the aim of our ministry is love. And love works out of a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. It's the truth of the gospel that leads to those three things, that leads to love, that leads to mission. So, yeah, we are a group of churches, church planters, who are committed to the confession because we, we believe it helps us articulate the truth, uh, the truth of Scripture. And as we hold to the truth of Scripture, uh, in some ways, the, the more we hold to the truth of Scripture, the more we should be moved to mission. Uh, the most mission-minded churches should be the most confessional churches, uh, in my mind. So, yeah, we, we're trying to set that example. Um, sadly, I, I think both of us could speak to churches uh, from experience that are very confessional and not mission-minded, or maybe mission-minded and not too confessional. But the two should uh, be wedded together. Uh, the truth of God should move us to mission. So, yeah, uh, our, our group... Um, I believe is encouraging something that is scriptural. Um, uh, the, the mission must be based on the truth. I know parts of your story as you've been over in Ann Arbor um, and different ways in which you have been trying to get feet on the ground, to meet people, to establish relationships. Can you share some of those things that you're currently doing with the guy who's listening, who's also trying to plant a church and trying to come up with ways in which to be missional in his community? Yeah, I, I, I think uh, Keller's chapter on networking, uh, the evangelism chapter in his church planning manual is very helpful. Uh, I am in a context where at certain parts of the day, you know, every hour, I see thousands and thousands of students walk by, if I'm in a coffee shop, <laughs> walking by, and I can tend to feel guilty, like, how do I talk to these people? You know, do I walk down the sidewalk and, sidewalk and just start talking to every person I see? Uh, I don't think that's the most effective. Um, people do that, uh, but I don't think that's the most effective, and I don't think I should feel guilty because I'm not stopping every person I walk by on campus as they're rushing to class. Um, or, or rushing to something between uh, appointments uh, more in Main Street uh, area. Uh, so for me, I spend my time uh, at three different coffee shops. I try to go there for the same time each day, and it's interesting to see uh, who the regulars are, and I try to meet some of the regulars as I become a regular. Um, and then just others, if, uh, if a guy's reading a, a book, uh, uh, about a week ago a guy was reading a book uh, by Nietzsche, uh, gay science, it was called, and I just asked him how he liked the book, and we started talking. I, I think people in the in the coffee shop setting are willing to talk uh, if we're willing to initiate conversation. Now, sometimes they aren't; uh, and they blow you off. But that's one way through the coffee shops and just trying to meet people that way. Uh, then I also uh, was playing basketball at lunch with a group of guys and slowly meeting them uh, before a little uh, old man injury hit me, uh, sidelined me for about a month. But I do think the key is, is networking. Um, I took a class at U of M, and there were about 15 kids in the class, and I was able to, to meet some of them and get to know some of them. So I think that's the most effective way, finding ways to be a part of the community, uh, joining any kind of club or a, a basketball group or something where it's natural to get to know people and have conversations. 
uh, and slowly invite them. It's a process for me, uh, still learning how to do it, but that's what's been most effective in these first few months. For the benefit of our listeners, would you share briefly the story of your interaction with a fraternity on campus, which is something that a lot of people would say, what does a church planner have to do with a fraternity? And just kind of share that story. Yeah, I was encouraged uh, short, really right before I moved to Ann Arbor, an elder in my church mentioned the story of a young man who was uh, sadly paralyzed this summer in a boating accident. And uh, so when I moved to Ann Arbor, I I came and uh, visited him in the hospital. Uh, It was kind of out of the blue, and he kind of wondered why I was there, but I I met with him, read scripture, and prayed with him. Uh, And this young man was in a fraternity here at Michigan. And so a few weeks later, I decided to reach out to another young man in the fraternity to plan a a prayer vigil for uh, this young man's name is Taylor, who was injured uh, on campus. So we, um, I was able with this fraternity member and a few other brothers from the fraternity to sit down two or three times and plan this prayer vigil. and a good group came out to the, the center of U of M's campus. I think we had about 200, uh, 250, 225 maybe uh, people there. And uh, I was able to lead in prayer. Taylor's dad said a few words, probably uh, a few other people uh, uh, talked. But, yeah, it was encouraging to just try to build relationships with some of these fraternity brothers. Uh, they, they couldn't believe I was a pastor, and I just I, I didn't fit inside their box of what a pastor should look like and, and talk like. And so was I hope— the bald head? <laughs> it was the really hipster glasses uh, that threw them <laughs> off. But, um, yeah, so it was a good opportunity. I, I don't know what will come of that. Uh, a few of the, close, the guys I got closer to, or at least knew, uh, are in South Africa this semester uh, studying abroad. Uh, but yeah, I, I hope to do more of that. We want to be a church that's focused outwardly, and uh, part of that is doing service-type things like we did for Taylor. So we're, we're trying to find other ways to do that, and, and we've thought of trying to join with some fraternities um, or other organizations on campus in doing that. So that, that's still in process, but that was a wonderful opportunity right at the beginning of our ministry here. How can our listeners be praying for you, your work in Ann Arbor, uh, Redeemer Church? How can we be praying for you? Yeah, our goal is to uh, share Jesus with people here. And uh, right now we have a, a small group of people, you know, maybe uh, 15, around 15 to 18 people who are either interested or committed. Uh, so it's a small group uh, just joining us. So we need uh, we were asking God to add to our, our core group here uh, to give some key families and, and that God would keep us focused on what he's called us to do here, uh, that God would open doors uh, for conversations about Christ and that God would uh, lead us all forward in mission. So I'm thankful for God's kindness to us and uh, reminding me again and again uh, of our need for him and for our eyes to be on Jesus. But yeah, that, that God would... Uh, add people to our group uh, to be a part of this amazing opportunity here in Ann Arbor. If somebody felt compelled after listening to this to contact you, or maybe even that they live in Ann Arbor or have uh, uh, friends or uh, relatives that are attending the school and wanted to contact you, um, what's the best way to get a hold of you as far as uh, through email and your website? Yeah, I believe uh, Yeah, my, my email's on the website. 
so feel free to email. That's probably the best way uh, to get in contact with me. But I'm in Ann Arbor every day. Um, so, yeah, uh, willing to meet at a coffee shop to share the vision of what we're doing here. Our, our website deal, details some of that, but uh, definitely through a personal conversation, we could share our heart for what God has called us to here. So, yeah, definitely email me. What is your website? It's RedeemerA2.org, www.RedeemerA2.org. Awesome. Thanks for your time, Jim. We appreciate you uh, giving us this big chunk of your day and uh, just really excited about what God's doing there in Ann Arbor through you. Um, excited about the the prospect of a church that's really trying to be all things for all people and still uh, be confessional. So it's exciting to see. So Thank you. Thank you. Very encouraging to talk. All right, buddy. Take care. All right. See you. Thanks for listening to the Confessional Collective Podcast. For more information and resources, please visit confessionalcollective.com. Be sure to like our Facebook.